Imagine, if you will, your most joyful moment. Let me give you a second to think about it. Have you got it? Hi, I'm Katie with Bountiful Living, and today we're going to talk about joy. Maybe when you were thinking about it, it may have been landing your dream job, finishing that 10K that you trained so hard for, or maybe just holding your brand new baby in your arms for the first time. Webster's Dictionary defines joy as an emotion evoked by well-being, success, and good fortune, and an experience of great pleasure and delight. I can definitely say that I felt joy when I got married, when I held my baby for the first time, and even putting out the first episode of this podcast. Because if I can be 100% honest with you, you have no idea how long I have dreamed and prayed and waited to share everything that I have been writing for the last 10 years or so. So it was a joy for me to finally have completed something I've worked a long time to accomplish. But of course, I'm never going to take a word at just face value. I really want to know and understand what it means. I know that joy is a little bit different from happiness. Happiness is something that fades, something that isn't lasting. But joy is that thing that when we have it, even if horrible things are happening in our life, hard times financially, or maybe we've lost someone that we love to cancer, we can have joy knowing they're in heaven or have joy in the relationship we have with that person. That kind of joy never really goes away. It's something that stays with you. Happiness is different because it fades. In my studies about a year ago, in fact, took me to some of the apostles who were sharing their greatest joy. I've never really taken the time to study First and Second Thessalonians. They're tiny little books, but it was interesting to discover they were a part of a church group that was born from Paul's second missionary journey. He was actually there and traveling with Timothy and Silas. So the three of them are actually co-authoring this letter to the church there in this wealthy capital city of Macedonia, which is now modern-day Yugoslavia or Greece. We're not 100% sure of where the territories are uh, with this ancient city, but that's where it is now. It's considered Greece and the Yugoslavia area. But at the time, this was a Roman colony which had ensured its citizens all the benefits of Roman citizenship. And with the Romans being in power, that was something that people definitely wanted. It came with um, prestige and money and culture and, you know, a market, which is nice to have in an ancient city. This city was actually named after Alexander the Great's half-sister and had a population of about a thousand. And I always try to get these kind of details to understand where these apostles were, who they were speaking to, and that as we're reading this text, we can understand what it was maybe like to be standing there as Paul, Silas, and Timothy telling these people about Jesus for the first time. 
To get a little background on this missionary journey, we actually need to go to the book of Acts. It starts in Acts 16, 9 through 10, where Paul has had a vision of a man crying out, asking for them to come to Macedonia. And in Acts 17, Paul gives one of, in my opinion, his greatest sermons or speeches on who God is. So if you can picture this city for a moment, any of you who studied ancient civilizations know and understand this was a place of power, of prestige. This is a gathering place. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing this when I say Areopagus, Areopagus, but the people would gather in this place. It was sort of like a council. Well, people would come to discuss important things. The theologians would come and talk and debate and learn. It was a place where they would settle court cases and where the council of the elders of the city would gather. It was very similar to the Roman Senate. And this place, this site where Paul gives this speech, he's walking through the city because it's a mixture. It's kind of a melting pot of different cultures because it's not Rome. It is a Roman city. So there's people who are there who are considered Roman citizens, but they're from all walks of life. And there are Jews there. There are Christians there. There are people who don't know God there. In fact, any of you who have studied any Greek or Roman cultures, you know they worshiped many gods. And as Paul is walking through this city, he notices an altar with an inscription that says, To an unknown God. So Paul is standing here at the Areopagus telling people about Jesus in Acts chapter 17. And there amongst the people that he's talking to are the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers of the day. And they say to the crowd, what would this idle babbler wish to say? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Well, Paul, because he's awesome, does not insult these people. He respects their culture. He respects their knowledge. He doesn't want to talk down to them. He is so respectful when he says in verse 22, he stood there before the council and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found this altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he has needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, breath, and all things. And he made from one man, he's referring to Adam here, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. 
and as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. So that is a spot there where he honors the philosophers of the day using their own vernacular and their own language to tell them who God is. Then Paul continues, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. He's talking about idols here. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God is not declaring to men that all people everywhere would repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, whom he appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So the response to this great speech was varied. In verse 32, it says, Now when they heard of this resurrection from the dead, some of them began to sneer. So when we're sharing our faith and when we're sharing Christ, I've definitely, don't know about you, I've gotten some responses like that. But others said, come again tomorrow, because we will hear this again. I'd like to hear more of what you have to say. And in verse 33, it tells us Paul had to go away, but many joined the faith. This is the moment that the Thessalonica church is born from these people. And they actually begin to gather outside of the gates of the city because there aren't enough of them for it to be worthy of a synagogue or worthy of a temple or worthy of a church. But these people mattered. In fact, they matter so much. Paul said that they were his greatest joy. Okay, so you guys have held along with me for a little bit of history and background on Thessalonica and how it was formed. And I want to bring it to a present day for all of us, because each of us as believers have been given the great commission to go into all the world and to make disciples. So how do we do that? What do we do when people sneer? What do we do when we're persecuted? How do we handle when people are putting pressure on our faith and they're rejecting our faith. As you can see in Acts 17, there was varied responses there. Some accepted. Some said, I'd like to hear more, but I'm not sure. And others just were like, this guy is a wackadoo, you know, get him out of our city. And as we're sharing the gospel, we may have each and every one of those varied responses I don't want to get too far off track, but I want to share with you briefly a personal story of sharing my faith. The second half of my third grade year was one of the hardest times in my childhood, at least socially. Upon sharing my faith with the teacher and students in my class and my personal convictions as a believer, I was bullied and tormented for the entire last half of that year. So much so that I did not ever abandon the Lord or the gospel in my life, but it silenced it. Sharing the gospel only in places where it was welcome or just telling people I'm a Christian, and for the most part, leaving it at that. Keeping Christ to myself. And I did this because I did not enjoy being persecuted. 
I was a child then, and looking back on my life, there was definitely times I shared the gospel. I wasn't completely negligent. I will spare you all of those stories to protect those involved because I was rejected again. Not once, not twice, not even three or four times, but every single time. And suffice to say, I can see why in my life in the last five, ten years, I am not eager at all to share the gospel with all the rejection I've continually endured. But I wish I knew then what I know now, that they were not really rejecting me. They're rejecting Christ. And I took all this rejection so harsh that it silenced me for a long time from sharing the gospel. As believers, we can learn a lot from Paul and how he persevered. He took beatings, physical ones, not just a tongue lashing or a hard word. If he had given up, if he had decided, this is too much, I throw in the towel, he would not have reaped and received the reward of this church in Thessalonica. It was actually one of the churches that Paul never had to write to and say, guys, you're off track. Let's get back on track, as he had to so much with the Corinthians and many other epistles that he wrote to the early church. When Paul, Silas, and Timothy left Philippi, beginning their second missionary journey to Macedonia and ending up in Thessalonica, what joy and rest he received there. When I was reading 1 Thessalonians, I have to be honest, I wept reading how he felt towards this faithful church whose labor of love and steadfastness of hope in Christ that we see in chapter 1, verse 3, he equates them with his joy and hope and crown of exaltation. I had to read chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 a few times to get the full picture, and I'll read it to you today. It says, For who is our hope, our joy, our crown of exaltation? Is it not even you and the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. And if you're missing what Paul is saying here, because I certainly did for the first time I read through it, he is envisioning these new believers, these converts, the church of Thessalonica, clothed in white, in the presence of Jesus, when he will someday return for his bride. What is the reason for Paul's joy? He isn't referring to riches or souvenirs he received while visiting Greece or delighting in the fine Greek cuisine. He delighted in their salvation and equates it to a crown of exaltation, glory, and joy. We cannot allow rejection to stop us from sharing the good news. What if Paul had stopped? Thessalonica would have missed out on the comfort and joy that comes from knowing Jesus and anxiously awaiting his return. Paul declares in Acts 20, 20-24, saying, I did not shrink back from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And behold, now bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing 
what's going to happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I don't consider my life as any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul didn't allow anything, not even knowing what had already happened to him, that he had been beaten, that he had been in prison, that afflictions were coming. He didn't let it hold him back and stop him from sharing the gospel, knowing that chains, rejection, suffering awaited him. Sharing life in Christ was of greater importance. So if when I first started talking about joy, your answer was something a little bit different than Paul's, hey, Nobody needs to feel bad. I will raise my hand first because this perspective on joy really convicted me. It got me thinking about what we prioritize. Yes, there are many wonderful, joyful experiences that we have as human beings, but none of it should compare to the joy we have in Christ and the joy in knowing Those who know Jesus, who believe in his name, will stand before him clothed in white, awaiting a place where tears are wiped away. While there's no longer any suffering, any pain in our physical bodies, even right now, I can feel like a burning in my wrist from all the writing I've been doing lately. All of that's going to be gone. All of it will go away. And I'll have to admit, I did not list that moment the moment of my salvation, the moment of the salvation of my children to be among my greatest joys. But may I propose to all of us today that it should be? The Bible tells us to store up our treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. And I've always associated this verse with our heavenly rewards, the mansion, the crowns, But with Paul calling these believers in the church of Thessalonica his crown of exaltation, and I just picture Paul, Silas, and Timothy being crowned with joy for the people that are now in heaven because they weren't afraid to share the gospel. So I have to also wonder, is it part of our treasure, our reward, our joy for the people who are in heaven because of us, the ones who are saved from eternal separation from God. Whereas in heaven, our tears will be wiped away, and in hell, there's going to be weeping, agony, and gnashing of teeth. That is not what I want for my loved ones. I do consider some of my greatest earthly joy and treasure to be my friends and family. And I cannot imagine eternity without them, or worse, eternity where they are experiencing eternal suffering with no hope for peace. I am confident in this new revelation of joy because of the what is said of Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. It's always hard for me to really think about what Jesus went through when he went to the cross. But he endured it. He did it for the joy of me and for the joy of you. And every time I think about those nails that 
were driven through his hands and the crown of thorns that pierced his skull and his flesh, the ridicule that he endured, he did all of that for the joy. So therefore, I cannot be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Will it be hard to share our faith? Yeah. Will we be persecuted? Possibly. And rejected? Yes. Thankfully, in America, our worst persecution is something like a rejection or or tongue lashing. I can't not think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and in other countries where sharing the gospel is actually illegal, that they have to meet in underground churches and carry around scripture written in composition notebooks so that they don't look like Bibles. Please remember to pray for them and be grateful that we have freedoms to share our faith. So what is stopping you? I know I can't stay silent anymore. Jesus gives us a comfort as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Many of you have heard it as the Beatitudes, blessed this, blessed that. Let me take a moment and turn quickly to that. Okay, maybe not super quickly. <laughs> Matthew 5, 11 through 12. Jesus says to comfort us, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We're not alone in our suffering. We're not alone in our persecution. It's something that as believers we share. But Jesus is saying that we are blessed. And that word, a very brilliant, wonderful friend of mine, shared with me the other day what that means in the Greek. So I cannot take any credit for this one. Blessed in the Greek means makarios. So as many times we have to really go deeply into a word where there is not a perfect English translation for what Jesus was saying. In Greek philosophy, this was a word for those who lived in another world almost, far from problems and worries of this world. That's really us learning to have an eternal perspective which is so hard sometimes when we're focused on the temporal, on the day-to-day troubles and, and trials and things that we go through in this human life. So I'll read that again with the Greek definition of the word blessed. From Matthew 5, 11 through 12, you are free from earthly cares and struggles when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say, all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. So my hope is that after today, we never stop having joy here on earth because it is a gift from God, but that we also know our greatest joy is our salvation. Check out the blog post for the joy. I will have all of my scripture references as well as historical documentation listed there at bountifulliving.net.